Most people will have sung carols in church or wherever in their community. Whether they're Christian or don't have any faith or indeed whatever, they will have sung carols. Why do we sing them and where do they come from, John? Music is a very natural form of celebration. And um, there was a midwinter festival in the Northern Hemisphere long before Christianity came along, um, really because it's so miserable um, in terms of the harvest is starting to run out and the vats of wine are running low. And so you may as well have a good time while you can. And then, of course, Christianity in a way hijacked this midwinter festival and elided it with the story of Christ's birth. And so... Everybody has wanted to celebrate Christmas, whether um, in the Christian era or before, um, but that celebration has become mixed together in a rather unique and lovely way. And so we will sing a carol like the holly and the ivy, which has got the rising of the sun and the running of the deer, and those are pagan images, of course. And then we've got the playing of the merry organ suites singing in the choir, which is Christian. And so the same impulse is there to celebrate. And it can be religious or it can be secular. And carols have been, I think, such a successful form of folk art, because that's really what they are, because they embrace every kind of celebration at a time of year when we are ready to enjoy it. And we know that you've just been made a fellow, uh, the Ivan Novello Award, which is, of course, hugely prestigious. And that's for all of the music that you've composed over, over many, many years. Many people will, of course... Um, think of you to do with Christmas if you like but of course we know that's not just the case but what brought you into Christmas carols originally? Singing in my school choir we sang carols in my junior school and the carol service which was shamelessly modelled on the nine lessons and carols at Christmas Eve in King's College Cambridge we probably weren't as good uh, but we were aiming at the same thing that was one of the great high points of our singing year Um, we rehearsed for weeks and weeks and a lot of those carols um, brought joy to me and indeed to everyone else in the choir because they were so lovely and there we all were in our surpluses and cassocks and so forth and we really did give of our best and so I had a love of singing carols because of the happiness that surrounded them and it only seemed a very short step from there to composing some carols at my own and I was spurred on somewhat by my great school friend John Tavner um, later to become a great and famous composer but both of us wrote Christmas carols in the hope that they might get included in our school carol service and you know neither of them ever did I mean he, he he wrote one that I remember called earthly friends will change and falter and I thought it was rather good and I wrote one called the nativity carol I must have been about 16 at the time um, I actually put it in for the Bach choir carol competition adjudicated by no less than the great David Wilcox the director of the Bach Choir and the brief was to write a carol which could be sung both by the choir and by the audience and I rather shot myself in the foot because the refrain bit that the audience is supposed to sing went up to a top A which is well outside the comfort zone of most audience members at any public event 
and perhaps it was because of that that um, it did not win and it didn't even get a highly commended. It did, however, get published. And in fact, it was one of my very first batch of published pieces. Now, if you fast forward about six or seven years, Sir David Wilcox, who was director of King's College Choir, of course, one day um, at the end of the class, he took me aside and said, well, Mr. Rutter, I understand you've been composing. Would you kindly bring a selection of your recent work to my rooms in King's at nine o'clock on Monday morning? And I turned up on Monday morning with a pile of what actually included the Nativity Carol. And um, He must have taken some note of it because it was not long after that that he invited me to co-edit the second volume of the renowned Carols for Choirs series. And there in a pile submitted by our publisher was the Nativity Carol. I said, well, um, I did put it in for the Bach Choir Carol competition, uh, Mr Wilcox, that you judged just a few years ago. And uh, well, it didn't win, did it? And it didn't even get a highly commended in... Uh, He smiled and said, yes, well, I think it's improved remarkably since then, John. (laughs) And so thus it was that almost my first ever composition, um, certainly the first to be published, got included in the second volume of Carols for Choirs. So I got started with Carols and somehow I've never stopped. And of course, we should say that we're so thrilled that we're continuing, hopefully, the the tradition of uh, the annual carol competition which you have helped us judge you've touched on kings and its importance what do you feel about the king's tradition and that moment of uh, christmas eve and everyone the whole world well not the whole world but a lot of the world suddenly plug into this extraordinary moment oh well king's college choir was a role model for us all in a way Um, The business of the nation more or less stopped at three o'clock on Christmas Eve and everybody, as it seemed, tuned in to the BBC Home Service, later Radio 4, to listen to the annual Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, including me. And so long before I ever went to Cambridge um, or visited the chapel, I knew something about what went on there on that one magical day of the year and its influence spread far and wide and of course it went much further back than David Wilcox because the idea of a festival of nine lessons and carols went back to Truro Cathedral which was then not exactly built in the 1880s there was a wooden shed and the building of the grand cathedral was still to come but the dean of the cathedral Archbishop Benson, and he later did become Archbishop of Canterbury. At that time, he was he was the Dean of Truro Cathedral. And his young chaplain, Eric Milner-White, was in due course of time translated to King's College uh, at the end of the First World War. He thought that uh, there needed to be a new kind of celebration of Christmas. And so he borrowed Benson's Nine Lessons and Carols format and translated it very successfully to King's College. And it was first broadcast by the BBC in 1928. And that was immensely important because it was one of the first outside broadcasts from the then-fledgling British Broadcasting Corporation. 
So there was, I think, quite a carol revival on the back of King's College holding that annual event. And so you you really can't overestimate its importance. Um, It did set a model and shone out like a beacon to all who loved choral music at Christmas time. So the great tradition of um, Christmas Eve from King's, it starts with that kind of moment of silence that you hear rarely on a radio, dare I say, and suddenly this lone voice in once in Royal David City. Do you know of how the, all of that works at King's, John? Well, I do know that the chorister who is chosen to sing it is only chosen on the spur of the moment. That's a tradition that goes back before David Wilcox to Boris Ord's time. And of course, in one sense, it's unnerving, but the reason for the tradition of only choosing the solo voice at the last minute was so that whoever it was wouldn't have the opportunity to get nervous at leisure. Um, You just had to do it on impulse. Now, why is that verse sung as a solo? I don't think anybody knows, but it's a masterstroke of drama because it symbolises the way that the Christmas story just starts in one rather inconspicuous place in that stable um, long ago. And that, I think, is something that is summed up in music in such a wonderful way, um, because the second verse is then picked up by the choir as they process in. And then in the third verse, the organ enters. And in the fourth verse, everybody sings and so it symbolizes the way that Christmas opens out and embraces us all and I don't think it would ever be a good idea to try and change the way that we sing that rather lovely Victorian hymn. David Wilcox did so much in his own way, didn't he, to kind of express things in a in a new kind of way. And I suppose, particularly in what I call the rousing Christmas hymns, you know, Oh Come All You Faithful and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and so on, I think they've become the international sort of descants that people sing. You could try another one on most people, but they'll say, oh no, it's got to be the Wilcox. And of course, it, it really was the whole new sound, wasn't it? Yes, um, I think... David Wilcox changed the way that musicians celebrate Christmas. Um, He built on the foundations of the great Christmas hymns, which had become standards. And he found a way of making them new. Um, A descant is quite simply a second melody that you put on top of the melody that's there already. 
And it is quite an achievement for that descant to become as famous as the tune itself. But I think it probably is the case that um, everybody who knows the tune of O Come All Ye Faithful also knows the David Wilcox descant. Yes. And like every good descant, it lights up the sky somehow. Uh, as the choirs of angels sing in that verse, um, so it seems like there's a blaze of light. He found a way of including in that descant a hint of Ding Dong Merrily on High. Um, and somehow the tunes fit together in a most extraordinary way. And he took off from there. He did the same for Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Mendelssohn's great tune. In a way, um, he created the sound of Christmas in the 1960s for those who were ready to have it refreshed for them. I think every generation, the music of Christmas needs refreshing. New talents mm. need to come along. And he happened to be in the right place at the right time. And of course, I'm going to ask you now about, dare I say, possibly your most famous carol, the Shepherd's Pipe carol. What is the genesis of it? Because I think a lot of people would love to know that. Well, I'm really not sure. <laughs> I do remember when I wrote it. It was in my last year at school. And I don't really remember why I wrote it. Uh, and I've made up stories that uh, possibly are not even strictly true. Um, Pablo Picasso uh, did a picture of a little shepherd boy um, cuddling a baby lamb. And it's quite unlike his later work, as a matter of fact, but it is rather touching and rather simple and rather lovely. And so I thought, well, that's a shepherd boy. Um, I wonder if he was a musical shepherd. And if so, um, well, he would probably play a pipe because it's portable, a nice simple instrument for a young boy to be able to manage. And all I really remember is that it began with the, the words on the way to Bethlehem, with that slightly syncopated rhythm, which fits the way that you would naturally speak the words. And then I thought, well, there must be a little bit of melody that fits that. And that, I think, was the seed or the germ from which it grew. There's a refrain which throws you off balance because the piece as a whole is in 4-4 four, four time. One, two, three, four. And then I suddenly go into 3-8 time. Da, 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 That's a bar of 2-4. Probably the Shepherd's Pipe Carol caught on because it wasn't quite like any choir carol that anyone had composed before. I never thought the shepherd would still be piping almost 60 years on. And the Shepherd's Pipe Carol is still one of the half dozen pieces that um, wherever I might go in the world, whatever else of mine people don't know, they will probably have come across it. 
I went through a period of being a bit fed up that people associated me so much with Christmas. But then in the end, I thought, well, it's a lot better than being associated with famine and plague and pestilence. You know, Christmas <laughs> is, a, is a happy time of year. And I've come to accept it. And I look upon carols rather like visiting cards, you know, just a way of saying, hello, here's a little something. And of course, a good carol doesn't go on too long. So within the space of three or four, at the most probably about five minutes, you have a chance to leave a little impression on people and in some way to celebrate or reflect upon Christmas itself. So this great service at King's uh, ends with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, this great Mendelssohn tune. What kind of feeling do you think this gives to people when they hear it, year on year? I think that it signals that Christmas has come, um, that we're about to venture forth in our coats and scarves um, to look forward to family festivities. And somehow Hark the Herald gives us the permission to go out and do that. Mendelssohn would have been astonished because, of course, he wrote this tune as part of a cantata for male voices celebrating the 500th anniversary of the invention of printing. Mendelssohn said quite firmly this could never be fitted to a sacred text, but it was. So we have Charles Wesley's words wedded to Mendelssohn's immortal tune, um, which is foursquare and solid and festive and seems somehow inevitable and unchanging from year to year, which is how we would like our ideal Christmas to be, but refreshed. Oh.